this week and next week. We'll have Wednesday night. Then we'll take a couple weeks off, come back in January. And so if you remember, when I was teaching, teaching through 1 Corinthians, I moved aside chapter 7 till these two weeks, so I get them in a row. I, I went from 6 to 8, and then come back to uh, chapter 7 and all that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, it's 40, no, 40 verses long. Good, I have plenty of time. So in, in, in 1 Corinthians, when, and if you remember, Paul, in the middle of the 50s, uh, he's at Ephesus. He's writing to this church that he started about five or six years earlier. Um, and the church of Corinth was, was being divided. It was being broken up in, 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 in factions. And part of the struggle, I, I, to me, I, I've really felt over the last decade as I've studied Corinthians, the real issue more than anything else, that there was a group inside the church. It was the, the church was divided up, but there was a group who thought of themselves as super Christians. And it took, and it took different forms. And one of the forms kind of comes out tonight. The church was primarily Gentile in a thoroughly pagan environment where promiscuity and immorality ran rampant in the city. And since most of them came out of a Gentile background, you know, they, they came out of that world. And as so often in pagan culture, the promiscuity and the religion were tied together. Paganism, by its very nature, is a promiscuous religious movement. In fact, most Eastern kind of religions have a tendency to be easily be promiscuous if, if, if you know, just the way they are, the nature of them. But religions that are tied to fertility, to the land, to the agricultural world, really tend to be that way. And that's what they dealt with so much in mythology. It's, it's kind of the way it was. And so coming out of that world into Christianity, um, they needed to leave all of that behind, which could be difficult to do. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians, you deal with some of that. There appears to be, as Paul is dealing with the problems early in the book, he deals with some issues. Then there comes a point when he begins to deal with questions they have asked. So when you come to chapter 7, you're coming to the point where he is dealing primarily, it appears, with issues that have arose that they have sent to him or that somehow have come back to him through questions or comments or whatever. And you certainly get that in chapter 7. Now, when you come to chapter 7, um, what Paul is going to be talking about, please understand, is radical to that culture. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about um, promiscuity. He's talking about the right way of marriage. He's talking about later on, we'll see this this week, but we'll see it next week, the dealing with the you know, virgins. He's dealing with all this stuff. Right off the bat, understand what Paul does. And Paul gets this crazy label as being a misogynist or hates women or all that stuff. He gets from Ephesians, and I've explained Ephesians so many times. If you've been a part of, the, of this church for any length of time, you know that I've explained that. Paul elevates the role of women. Christianity elevated the role of women. 1 Corinthians 7, ladies, Paul puts women on absolute equal footing with men in the home in terms of the relationship. This doesn't have anything to do with, a lot of Ephesians has to do with if there's disagreement, if there are decisions to be made, you know, what you deal, how you deal with those, I, and I get all that. But here, he puts you on equal footing. It's, it's a phenomenal passage. The background of this is Genesis 2 with the man, Adam, being alone. And God said, it's not good for the man, for Adam, to be alone. So he made a helpmate that was suitable to him. The concept of suitable means to correspond. It's the idea of intimacy, to complement and to complete. The man and the woman complement each other 
and complete each other. That is the reason that all relationships of intimacy are between one man and one woman. It's all you need. It's why that all other types of intimate relationships or sexual activity outside of that one man, one woman relationship, which we call marriage, is inappropriate to the will of God. I don't care what our culture says. That matters. The culture doesn't dictate to God what is right. A sinful, fallen culture, sinful, fallen humans don't get to tell God how things should be done. Okay? Now, having said that, we live in that culture. Some of you have, have struggled with that. You've dealt with that. And I get all that. I, I, I say all the time, my, I, my mom is one of the most godly women I know. She got divorced when I was three. She remarried, you know, I was five. That marriage lasted 30-something years. Then when her other two children were grown, they got divorced. And, I mean, you know, my mom, my mom just, I never, mom never, thank, one thing my mom never tried to do is give me marital advice. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> you know? And, and Debbie and I both come from similar backgrounds in that way. And my mom was a wonderful, godly lady. And, and there were just struggles through that. And I get all that. I, I understand personally Growing up, and my, my stepfather was a godly man, there's no issues, but there's always stuff to deal with, okay? I got that. I've experienced that. I've dealt with it. It is a modern miracle that my wife has stayed married to me through all these years. This is why I have two drinks in hand. This eggnog has the Southern Comfort eggnog that we bought which I found somewhat strange that a Southern Baptist church has Southern Comfort eggnog, but it's no different than some of your homes the rest of the year. <laughs> Chapter 7. Now concerning things about which you wrote. Paul says, I'm going to deal with what you wrote. And then what he does is quote basically what they said. It is good for a man not to touch a woman or, if you have the NIV, be married to a woman, a remarried. So Paul says, you evidently raised a question that it is good or it is best for a man not to be married. This probably comes from a group within the church that consider themselves somewhat aesthetics. In other words, they remove themselves from the normal activities of married life. They were probably single to begin with, or they divorced their spouses, or because they came from a pagan background, the spouse didn't go with them. They, they highlighted, they, they elevated celibacy, and they elevated singleness to the point that they somehow thought they were spiritually better than other people. And probably this was the result of such a thoroughly pagan background. And so it may be something like this, our background so pagan and so sinful, the best thing to do is remove yourself completely. It could even be Jewish people, but Jews as a rule had such a high value of marriage that you don't really see singleness or celibacy coming from the Jewish world. It's just not common. So this was probably predominantly from a, back, a, a, a Gentile world. It wasn't that there weren't Jews who did that. You go off and, and you find, you know, if there were some who lived, you know, maybe like John the Baptist, and so we get that. But in a city like Corinth, in the cosmopolitan world where the Jews were there for the purpose of business, this, this was probably not from them. It could be, but it's highly doubtful. So Paul's going to address this. So Paul says this, because of immoralities, that word immoralities is pornia, which he has used already to deal with uh, fornication. Pornia is the fundamental biblical word for sexual immorality. We get our term pornography 
comes from that same word, porn, aya, pornography. It's that way. So, it, and it's a word that fundamentally has at its root evil, that which is against God. He says, each man, notice, is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Here, he, he elevates men and men. Now, it, it was not uncommon in, in, in a pagan society that a man may have a wife and a mistress and, and other things. In the, in the old Jewish world, a guy could have a wife and concubines. Paul just says, and, and basing this on an understanding he would have as the background of Genesis 2, each man, each woman, have, have one of each, have each other, and, and that's what they should have. That is the accepted, understanding concept of marriage. Notice this. And I like reading from the New American Standard best because it is the most gentle in its word usage. I looked up the New Living Translation. I'm like, good golly, I ain't reading that. Josh has the message back there, which is basically, we can't let people under the age of 21 read it at all. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, Paul says this. It's about intimacy. You must fulfill your duty, your responsibility. Now, notice what Paul does. This is so important. And it, it, this is critical to our understanding of human relationships. Paul talks about responsibilities and not rights. In our culture, when it comes to relationships, the primary thing you hear all the time, my right, my right, what is due me, what I should get, what I deserve. I have, uh, deserve. Do you ever think about how often you hear people say something about deserve? It is one of the most dumb concepts we have out there, what we deserve. Put God aside. What do you think you really deserve in life? I mean... You bring God into it, we deserve hell. It's purely by his grace. I deserve this. Everybody wants what they deserve. You know, if you remove God out of the picture, the only thing you would ever deserve is what you would work for, period. That would be all that you would deserve. When you bring God into the picture, that didn't even play into the equation. What God gives us is not what we deserve. It's what he gives us by grace. You, you rarely see the concept of a deserve or rights in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, what you see is responsibility. Marriage is giving, not getting. I, I say this all the time. When I do, when I do, when I do a wedding, uh, at some point I'll tell the couple when I, when I do my marital counseling. I don't do well. I'm not a fancy marital counseling guy. I mean, really, uh, I, what did I give you? Like 10 minutes? Five? Really? We're talking about other things. I'm picking on him. And your marriage is what? Doing great, by the way. Because, man, you get one of my marriages, it lasts about half the time. I mean, it's a pretty good deal. Uh, <laughs> but I know I said this to you, and you just shake your head whether I did or not. Or I'll curse you. It's not 50-50. It's 100-100. It is the total giving of self. In most marriages struggle. Because you don't give everything to your spouse. Every day, pretty much, when I pray about my wife, and there's a lot of things that I pray, you know, for, I pray she has patience. And I pray that she, you know, keep putting out with me. But in that prayer is that, God, I need to give to her everything. 
that I am. Some, some capacity of that. I word it differently. And Paul, that's what he's saying in, in that re- intimacy relationship. It's not about what you get. Notice, this is, this is wonderful what he says in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. And all the men say yes. And that was the Greek way of thinking. Women, you don't have authority. It belongs to your husband. The husband does. It says that in verse 4. And all the Greeks would stop and say amen. And then he says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And this is one of the most radical concepts you will find in human relationships in the New Testament. The woman has authority, ekosia, it's derivative, over the man. That word has to do with the natural rights that you would have. The word, I constantly write, the natural position you have. You belong to each other, so you are not your own, but you belong to one another. Remember, he's dealing with this whole problem of the church being pulled apart in different directions because some think because they're celibate, they have these unbelievable spiritual, you know, thing with God. So verse 5, he says this, <laughs> stop depriving one another from intimacy, except by agreement for a time. Two things, you have to agree, and it's a limited period of time, so that for the sole purpose of devoting yourself to prayer. In other words, there's, you know, we talk about fasting all the time, you know, but we don't talk, we don't talk about all the time, but you hear the word fast, you think of, of depriving yourself of food. Fasting I've shared uh, numerous times, I don't know how many times I've shared here in my six and a half years. Fasting is depriving yourself or withholding from yourself physical needs for the purpose of prayer for a specific period of time to accomplish a specific spiritual purpose. That's what he's talking, is a type of fasting. There may be a time so that in your relationship, you focus on prayer. So there's no intimacy for a period of time for a spiritual battle or spiritual connection. Agree upon it, it's limited, and then it goes away. So that, Satan, (laughs) Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you think there's temptation in our culture today, you should have walked down the streets of Corinth 2,000 years ago. Now granted, they didn't have the internet, but you, we can't possibly imagine the gross promiscuity of that day and age. I, th- there are times when I, and I preach, when I'm going to teach or preach about something, and I just say, Lord, I just grew up that I can't, I can't describe those things. My, 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 my mom, if she were alive, would slap me if I said, I mean, just the debauchery, the things they practiced. <sighs> So the temptation there was every bit as strong as today. In fact, a lot of people today, they go isolate themselves somewhere in a room or somewhere. And, 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 and so it's different in that capacity. No, he said to do that. But this I say to you by way of concession, not a command. So I'm not, I'm not per se commanding you. I'm just telling you, Paul's giving them godly advice. What I find interesting in chapter 7, and sometimes Paul says, I'm saying, in a minute we'll see, if we get to it, I'm saying this, not the Lord. That means it's not inspired. Some places he's saying the Lord says this. 
Sometimes Paul, remember, this guy was a brilliant Jewish scholar before he became a Christian. More so now. You know, Paul probably was married. We don't know. We know evidence. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. Jewish men got married, and they got married young. The rabbis say if you weren't married as a guy by 20, you know, you were you know, useless, you were profligate, whatever. Because he was a Pharisee, he would have had to have been married. He could not have been a Pharisee. Now, speculation is that his wife left him when he you know, became a Christian, which people say explains his bitterness towards women, though he wasn't bitter towards women. He may become a widower. Uh, we don't know what happened. It doesn't matter what happened. He, he was by this time single because he tells us he's single. So Paul wouldn't understand these things. And Paul, Paul is just this guy who's talking to all these young Christians. And he said, I've been a Christian over 20 years. I've been, I was raised in the Jewish way all my life. You know, in, in, in some places he talks about his lineage in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, about all he knows. He's saying, you guys need to listen to me. There's some wisdom coming this way. One of the few things good about turning uh, whatever I turned green is that you have enough scars, you know a few things. Sometimes you want to sell, you know, just listen to me a little bit and save yourself. You know, a smart person learns from their mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others. And Paul is trying to help them. And then he says in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I am and myself. How each man, every, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner or another and that. Paul says, I wish all of you could be like me. Because Paul has got to a point in his life where he doesn't need marriage. He was unique. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes we have to remember, Paul was different than anybody who's ever lived. So when people say, I just want to be like Paul, I'm like, nah, you really don't. You don't, and you can't, don't even try. But he does say that it is a gift. Celibacy is a gift, and marriage is a gift. But this is what's fascinating. I am not going to get what I thought I would cover today. Later on, we're going to get over to chapter 12, 13, and 14, where Paul deals with spiritual gift. It's a, it's a unit in there. And I'm always fascinated when people talk about spiritual gifts, because I... If you've been around long enough, you understand, you've probably heard me talk about gifts. I don't, I don't do all of the tests. I hate gift, gift tests, inventory. And I'll go into detail about this later. But the idea that giving a spiritual gift, which the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit gives the gift. The idea that a bunch of sinful, wicked humans can come up with tests to determine what gift the Holy Spirit has given you is beyond ludicrous. It's hubris at its greatest. And then they always say, well, here are the gifts lifted in Corinth, and the Corinthians and Romans, and in Ephesians. They give this list of gifts, which also is ridiculous because how, if you just read them, you know that Paul's not given an exhaustive list of gifts. And there's some in Corinthians that isn't in Romans. So, I mean, the Corinthians had gifts the Romans didn't and vice versa. How can we say they're all? It's just a convoluted thing. And then we say, because especially Baptists, well, some of those gifts don't count. Like speaking in tongues is not a, and we come up with all these convoluted reasons for it. And I get all that. But never in all the list of gifts do I ever see celibacy or marriage listed. Paul says it's a gift. And here's the thing. The word he used for gift, same word he uses in other places to talk about spiritual gifts. What I'm saying through all this is maybe we need 
to be in tune more, not with our own categorizing of the spiritual life, but sometimes listen to the wisdom of Paul and others and not get so caught up in trying to come up and contrive things. If you are married, that is a gift. And if you're a celibate, it is a gift. What it means is this. It is the Holy Spirit working in your life for a desired outcome. And he gives you the ability for both. And I tell you, both lifestyles require all the Holy Spirit will give you. Because I'm telling you, I can't, I don't even know what singleness, some of you are single and God bless you and, and, and you know, and I, I know you're, you're getting where God wants you to be and I deal with single people a lot, helping them with God's good work in their life. God will get you there one day, most likely. I doubt very few people are called to the single life. i just telling you that. But let God get you there, okay? Let God get you there. And let him take the giftedness, that process. And even people who are divorced and remarried, I... This is not in the Bible, and I might get in trouble for saying this. But I, I, I don't expect, I know sometimes people get divorced. That, and we'll see a reason for it in a minute. Getting remarried is the best course for them. I know a lot of preachers, Baptist preachers, will say, don't teach that, it's wrong. Yeah, well, I don't think it is. There's sin involved, and you'll have to get through that sin. I get that. I grew up, my mom and dad were divorced when I was three. I can't imagine my mom never marrying again. I would have been deprived of a father figure in my life that I needed. It was not a perfect marriage. No. And then they ended up getting divorced, which shouldn't have happened. But, you know, life happens. But my stepfather in my life provided godly spiritual wisdom. My dad never could or would have. So sometimes we need to be careful when we require of other people that which is never expected of us. It's like when you boycott things you don't do in the beginning. Anyways, <laughs> it doesn't do me any good to boycott Abercrombie and Fitch because I ain't going to go there anyways. So if I say, y'all need to boycott Abercrombie and Fitch. Y'all need to boycott Hollister. It's not like I go and get my skinny jeans there. <laughs> now, verse 8, I am not getting anywhere near where I need to be. But I say to the unmarried, that's single people, and to widows, well, it's good for them if they remain even as I. It's okay to be single, he's saying. <laughs> that's only Paul could word this. But if you do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul leaves out the part that you fall in love with somebody. So, <laughs> he, kind of, he, he takes it at its most basic human need. He said, if you're single, for what, or, or widow, or widow, just, it's good. Stay that way like I am. But if you're going to burn with passion, get married. Well, the understanding is you would burn with passion because you fall in love with somebody, and he semi-forgets that part. Now, um, far be it from me to be critical of Paul. I'm not doing that. But we have to paint the full picture. Remember, Paul is dealing with the issue 
of celibacy. He's dealing with the issue that some people say it is better to remain single. That that is the preferred Christian lifestyle. Paul is saying it's fine to be that way. But some people can't be that way. Behind all of this is Genesis 2. And do not forget, in Genesis 2, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. That hasn't changed. After Genesis 3, sin comes into the world. Everything about human relationships after sin came into the world is dealing with sinful human people with sinful problems. In Corinth, with promiscuity everywhere, and the gospel to be preached, Paul is saying, listen, if you can remain single, that's fine. That's good. But if you can't, that's okay too. Because we don't want you to think you have to remain single, but then you just are filled with lust and passion and it destroys you. That's, that's the issue. And a lot of times preachers forget the whole background. And they forget the whole Genesis 2 part. And, 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 they, just, and they try to deal with it without that background. He is saying, hey, it's okay. If you be single, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. I'm single. You know, look how happy I am. <laughs> Despite the fact that I get stoned, beaten, and uh, all those things happen. But he's saying if you just can't, go ahead and get married. Because you don't want to burn with lust. And, and burn, this doesn't mean burn in hell. It just means torture yourself that way. <laughs> the understanding would be that you're in love. That's why. Okay. So that part probably might be significant. I don't know. Now verse 10. I love this part. But to the married, I give this instruction. Not I, but the Lord. So now he's, before he was kind of giving his opinion. Now evidently, it's godly opinion. It's still inspired scripture. But now this is the Lord speaking through him. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But he's saying this, wives don't leave your husband. If you're married, don't leave your husband. And if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's saying equal. So in other words, he's saying this. You, probably, you shouldn't get divorced. You need to try to work it out. If you can't, separate. That's okay. If you're going to separate, separate. Now, there's some discussion whether he's talking about Christians are a believer and non-believer. Because later on he talks about non-believers and believers' relationship and all. And, and, and so there's the, a lot of scholars think, think here he's just talking about Christians. But I, I would say this, because he addressed the wife first, a lot of women came from a pagan background, came followers of Jesus. And it would be tempting for them to want to leave their spouses. Now he's going to deal with that more directly in a minute. To simply say this, this applies to Christian husbands and wives because later on he deals with pagans or, not, or a believer in a, in a pagan. It's kind of an argument from silence, and I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I, I think the better picture is him just recognizing in general that elevating women up to equality with men. Wives, stick it out if you can. If you can't, we need to be separated, be separated. But if you end up getting divorced, well, you ought to, you ought to stay that way, single. And the husbands, likewise, don't divorce your wife. Now that's, he doesn't talk about infidelity. Jesus does. And one of the things I think we always need to remember, it's always understood that 
infidelity, promiscuity, adultery, was a legitimate grounds for divorce. Paul being a Pharisee and a scholar from a Jewish background, all would understand that's acceptable. Now, there's some disagreement. Some scholars would say, and some pastors would say, no, that's not, what, that's not the case. But you, you can't escape the culture of that day. And against the background of all of this, it was always understood that adultery was a legitimate ground. Jesus said that, so Paul's not going to be arguing against Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, but it's just legitimate. It's been a lot of times. I tell you, marital counseling is tough when people come to me. And there's been situations that have been tough. And sometimes I'll look at someone and I'll just ask them bluntly, you know, can, can you deal with the fact that there was infidelity? And they'll tell me no. And then I say, well, okay. Then you can live your life miserable. Or you can go on and figure it out. But there are times that as your pastor, I'm telling you, I have never told someone he was cheated on. They had to stay with their spouse. Because. In here, it's given as an option. Don't say you don't have to. I'm not saying I recommend it. I'm saying there is always that. This is a, listen, here, here's the reality. We live in a hard, sinful world. And there are hard choices. And one of the things that I learned is that God didn't call me to be a pastor to take the easy way out of every situation. And just say, well, here's what the scriptures, here's what you got to do. Tough. And I don't deal with the consequences. The reality is marriage is hard. I know it's hard. I've been, I've been married 39 years. It's tough. And, you know, as much, it, it just always is. It gets easier, I know. Because, partly because you just forget everything. <laughs> I do. She doesn't. No, she doesn't forget anything. She's not here, I can say that. But, but things happen. And so Paul is saying, look, don't just go get divorced for whatever reason. If you get divorced, though, regardless, you, know, you, you probably need to stay single. And, you know, Jesus did say, you can't, in, in both the Old Testament with, with, with Moses and Jesus said, if you were cheated on, you could get divorced and you could get remarried. You can. But here he's saying, you really need to work it out. Quickly, verse 12, but I say this, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, don't divorce her. If a woman has an unbelieving husband, he consents to live with her. She must not send her husband. In other words, don't divorce your spouse just because you're a believer and he's not. And I'm going to go through this quickly. For the believing husband is sanctified through the, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through uh, the husband and your children. Uh, otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy or sanctified. The word sanctified, the word holy, same thing, means set apart. Agios is the basic root. In other words, the idea of sanctified, it means something like this. Because one of you is a believer, Christ is in your home. And so if Christ is in your home, there is a Christian element. Don't divorce them. And he's going to say, just a minute, they might get saved. And you don't want to divorce them because your children also. It's important for your children. So he's saying, the husband... 
And the wife who's an unbeliever, if they want to stay married, you stay married. Because Christ is in your home. And real quickly, verse 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. They want to leave if the other one wants to divorce, basically. Um, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. So if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let him leave. For here's the question. How do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? It could be a rhetorical question, but the idea is something like this. If you stay married, if they want to stay married. The unbeliever wants to stay married. They don't want to stay. If they want to divorce, you got to let them go. And that's, that's, in that culture, they didn't have much choice. But if they want to stay married, stay married. Because you might lead them to Christ. Now, this is not an excuse for unbelievers, for believers to marry unbelievers. I don't recommend that believers marry unbelievers. I've seen it a lot struggle. Sometimes it works out. A lot of times it doesn't. But it is. If you're two unbelievers who are married, if one becomes a believer, there is that chance you may bring them to Jesus. So if they want to stick it out, stick it out. It ain't going to be easy. And it ain't always fair. But easy and fair ended at the Garden of Eden. And so with that note, and it's 7 o'clock, I am through. <laughs>